Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about the science and practice of enduring change, alter your attitude, and find your flourish. My first guest is Dr. Richard Lane. He is a clinical psychiatrist and psychotherapist trained in cognitive neuroscience and emotion research, whose research has focused on brain mechanisms of emotion and emotion regulation, emotional weariness, neurovisceral integration, and the mechanisms by which emotions influences susceptibility to sudden cardiac death. His background in cognitive and effective neuroscience is now being integrated with his ongoing experience as a therapist and psychotherapy educator. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lane. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, pleasure to be here. Oh, it is a pleasure to have you because personally, I am fascinated by neuroscience. If I had my education to do over again, that's probably where I would find myself <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uncovering more of what's under the human hood and how to use our brains uh, in service to our own healing. Yes. Well, I felt very fortunate after I was fully trained as a psychiatrist and on the faculty and doing clinical work and, and doing research, I was able to get a scientist development award from the National Institutes of Health to be trained in neuroscience and emotion research and neuroimaging. And I feel very fortunate because it enables me to speak both the neuro, the basic science as well as the, the clinical application and the interrelation between the two. So let's talk about memory. Let's talk about our experiences. And we've all had a, a year full of them mm-hmm. <laughs> that like no other. And the application of the research and the work that you're doing to help us better understand and equip ourselves to deal with emotion dysregulation, which so many of us have experienced. Yes. What would you like to know? (laughs) Well, let's start out with the basic. When we talk about memories, each one of us uh, comes uh, packed, filled with memories. But what is a memory really? Right. So from the moment of birth, if not before, we're always learning things and we're learning things about our environment and how to interpret them. The thing about memory is that um, we think of it as, you know, a record of the past. And indeed, it is that. But the reason why that's so important is that it's a guide to the future. And we think that you know, in a, a really important area when it comes to our happiness is our social relationships, what we know about social relationships, how they work, and what we expect 
will happen, um, both on our part in terms of what we'll, we'll do, how we'll respond, and what we'll expect other people to do and how the transactions will go. And those are a kind of schematic memory. And what's really new and exciting is that in the past two decades, the neuroscience of, of memory has revealed that memories are not permanent records of the past, but they are modifiable and they are updatable. And so what that means, actually, what's been discovered is that whenever you recall a memory, it, it goes into a labile or modifiable state for the next four to six hours. And that memory can be updated by information that comes in during that four to six hour window, and then it gets stored again. We call that reconsolidation, and it happens at night while we're sleeping. And so what this book is about is really trying to take the most advantage therapeutically of that phenomenon. How can we update memories in a way that will be therapeutically beneficial? Let me ask you a question about that. Because what I'm hearing you say is then we have an experience, and usually we're trying to rewrite negative experiences, right? Not mm -hmm. necessarily positive experiences, because they're right. positive and they're juicy and we savor them and we love them. But when bad things happen, what you're saying is that there is a window of opportunity where we can rewrite the narrative or work with what has happened. So when it gets filed, once it gets stored in the back office, that it takes on a different context. That's right. Wow. And so, yeah, <laughs> that's, well, that's, that's right. important. It's very important. And, you know, we're not, th there's real interest uh, in the animal research on this in erasing memories. That's, you know, that's really not entirely possible with people yet. But what we're talking about is updating them. So there are a couple of different kinds of traumas. I mean, one kind of trauma is a, a single horrible event. And, you know, people have those indeed. And um, we know something about what happens in the brain and why it can create post-traumatic stress disorder. It's because the emotional arousal is... So at such a high level that it's overwhelming, we think that has something to do with a brain structure called the amygdala. And it in the activity of the hippocampus, which is our primary memory structure in the brain, of course, it's more complicated than that and there are other structures. But just in simple terms, the hippocampus is inhibit, inhibited and the amygdala is overactivated. And what that means is that the context, the contextualization of that specific event is compromised. And as a result, when anything that resembles the traumatic event happens, that lack of contextualization leads to a very strong response consistent with the trauma that's kind of inappropriate. So what we're trying to do in therapy is to change the contextualization and update it. And a really key point in our proposal is that the way to change memories from the past is to activate the old memory, what happened, but also the very painful emotions associated with it and to fully experience that. That's step one, and that's quite difficult mm. to do. Yeah, It needs to be done 
in the context of psychotherapy where there's a, a trusting, confiding relationship where you feel safe with the therapist. And step two is that the therapist will intervene in a way that is corrective. What that means is, for example, if something shameful happened in the past, maybe you've never even told anyone about it, you expect to be criticized, but then you have enough trust in your therapist to mention it. And while you expect to be criticized, you will might be shocked to see that the therapist is caring, compassionate, non-judgmental, empathic, even loving. And that's so unexpected and so much, so much more positive than expected. It's corrective. What you've done then is you've activated that old memory and the affect associated with it, the emotion associated with it, and you've updated the emotional content of that memory so that when it gets stored again, the emotional content changes. What that means then is following that, you might approach difficult situations again in a slightly different way. You might be a little bit more trusting, less inclined to avoid, more open to what might be possible. And lo and behold, as a result of overcoming the avoidance, you have more positive experiences that contribute to the building of a revised schema. Hmm. And how much or what part of the therapeutic relationship calls for the repetition of the story. Is it, what you're saying is that we keep telling the story till the charge is reduced? Or? So th that's a really interesting question. I think that for starters, it's certainly very useful to explicitly recall the memory. But the research on memory reconsolidation really indicates that you don't necessarily need to explicitly recall it. What you need to do is to have it be reactivated by a reminder, something that will connect to the memory but won't necessarily lead to explicit recall. So, so for example, you know, it, it's not unusual for clients in psychotherapy to view um, the therapist, you know, in ways consistent with how they experienced a parent in their childhood. And so to have that same kind of feeling for the therapist that's similar to the parent would be an indicator that there's a reminder process going on, which would mean that that reminder is activating the memory enough so that it can be modifiable. It makes total sense. And when we talk about uh, going back to the corrective emotional experience, mm -hmm. something bad has happened in, in the context of therapy, that event is reprocessed. And, and I think what you're saying is in a way repackaged and mm -hmm. replaced with a positive memory or enhanced, let's maybe because you can't really erase it, you enhance it, right, with something that is more positive. Right. Uh, the thing to know about memory is it's, you know, amazing, you know, mental phenomenon. A memory is not stored like a book on a shelf, but rather it's represented in the brain in, in multiple systems. So you might think about a past event. There's visual information. Um, you know, there's a soundtrack associated with it. Um, people are moving around and there's emotions 
Um, and we're not trying to change the memory of what happened. But what we are trying to do is we're trying to update the emotional component and transform the emotional component. And and it has and I think it has to happen bit by bit. I don't think that it all changes immediately, but I think that repetition and you know continuing work in therapy and then taking what you've learned in therapy and applying it in the outside world and having new and better experiences because you'll start to perceive the situations a little bit differently. You know, you'll maybe be more inclined to give other people the benefit of the doubt. You will have different kinds of emotional responses. And it contributes to a change in the schema. Let me make a, an important point about different kinds of memory. Before we do, I want to take yeah. a break because I, I, okay. and I want to come back and I don't want to break you in the middle of okay. an important thought. To learn more about Dr. Richard D. Lane and his work, he is also, I want to let everybody know, he is a professor at the University of Arizona Department of Psychiatry. You can find him on the website there. You can find the new book, Neuroscience of Enduring Change, Implications for Psychotherapy, on Amazon, Oxford University Press, or wherever you find your favorite books. And we're going to take a break. We'll be right back and we'll continue this very interesting conversation. Wait, wait, wait. Before we break, I want to applaud today's sponsor, Apostrophe, a prescription skincare company for people ready to take their acne, wrinkles, and dark spots seriously. After a year of masking up, I am fed up with maskne zits on my face and on a mission to heal and repair my skin. And as a mom of young adults who also battle acne and my own interest in a glowing complexion, we know that prescription acne treatment really works. Apostrophe makes it easy and convenient to see a board-certified dermatologist online. Save time and hassle. No more in-office visits or waiting in line at the pharmacy. Apostrophe helps attack maskne and can also help out with other skin care goals like reducing redness, wrinkles, and dark spots so you can look fresh-faced at any age. Fill out a simple questionnaire about your skincare concerns and a brief medical history, and you'll receive an immediate customized treatment plan and prescription medication delivered to your door. Apostrophe offers topical and oral medications so you can treat your acne from the inside out. This is happiness in a bottle that makes me feel better about myself. I love the quick and friendly service my dermatologist provided, as well as the over-the-counter recommendations she made to enhance my prescribed skincare treatment plan. This makes me feel happy in my own skin, and you will too. Get $15 off your first visit with a board-certified dermatologist at apostrophe.com slash harvesting and use our code HARVESTING. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash harvesting and click begin visit. Then use the code harvesting at sign up and you'll get $15 off your dermatology visit. That's A-P-O-S-T-R-O-P-H-E dot com slash harvesting and use that code harvesting to get your dermatology visit for $15 off. And we thank Apostrophe for sponsoring the podcast. Now let's take a pause. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. 
Welcome back. We're continuing the conversation with Dr. Richard Lane. We're talking about the science and practice of enduring change. Alter your attitude and find your flourish. Let's get back to it. And Dr. Lane, I want to just um, mention, as I did during the break, of a cartoon that I used to give my, my clients. And the cartoon is this. It's an image on the left of a really, really, really messy linen closet where everything is sort of strewn about, you know, there's no order, everything is in chaos. And the subtitle is, you know, this is your brain on PTSD. And then on the other side of the page is a very neat and tidy, perfectly folded and organized closet. And the caption is, you know, this is your brain after therapy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I like it very much, and I think there's a great deal of truth in it because I think that, you know, trauma is associated with, you know, the experience of chaos and not really being able to make sense out of it. And the the second photo that you talked about is one where things are organized, coherent. You can kind of make sense of the whole story. The one thing that I would add to this analogy, which I like very much, is – if you added to the first paragraph a kind of blind spot, if you will, or kind of murky area where things weren't well-defined at all. Because I think what characterizes trauma is because of the way the brain is functioning at the time and being emotionally overwhelmed, there's all sorts of emotional meaning to the trauma that never gets processed, right? It certainly wasn't processed at the time. And so often people just keep these horrible experiences to themselves. But when you meet with a psychotherapist, you reactivate the memory in a safe context. And you also have the additional perspective of the therapist. And the key idea here is that in trauma, you formulate the emotions associated with the trauma for the first time often in psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. So the example would be you might have been overwhelmed with a feeling of fear and that's all you can recall. But then later when you review it with the therapist sometime later, you can think about the person who did this, what their background was. You might get in touch with feelings of anger or rage that were not feelings that you had at the time necessarily, maybe because it was such an emergency situation and you were, you were so scared. But it is appropriate and it's, it's a kind of an elaboration of what made sense and contributes to healing. So let me elaborate further on and connect it to what we were talking about before, which is that uh, so far we've really essentially been talking about like a single event trauma. One of the things we talk about in the book and in previous papers is how there are different kinds of memory. Uh, in particular, specific event memory is called episodic memory. But then there's what we call semantic memory or generalizable knowledge, which is um, a distillation, if you will, of a variety of episodic or single event experiences, right? So, for example, we use the example of a young child, very young child, going to a park and seeing a little flying creature and it's yellow, it's got wings, it's got a beak. And then it sees another one that's a little bit bigger, it's red, you know, slightly different size, but it's got these common features of feathers and a beak. Over time, the, the child 
comes to recognize that there's a commonality and develops the concept of bird and learns the word bird. That's a distillation of different episodic experiences into a concept or generalizable knowledge, a semantic memory, if you will. We think the same thing happens as you're growing up. You, you live your life, you interact with family members, you have experiences, and it's not unusual for things to happen that may be intolerable. You develop what we call schematic memory. It's a type of semantic memory, schematic memory of what kinds of patterns are expected in relationships. What do you expect to happen in a family relationship, in a work relationship with someone in a position of authority? What happens when you interact with friends? And so that's what we come away with. We have an internal working model of the social world that develops and is highly adaptive for the childhood environment that we had. Then we grow up, we go out into the adult world. And our internal working model is the one that got developed in childhood. It was beautifully adapted to whatever was going on there, but can be problematic in the adult situation, which is often why people come in for help. So what we talk about is how there's this, we propose what's called an integrated memory model, which is that episodic memory or event memory, semantic memory or generalizable knowledge and emotion these three different f functions are always interacting with one another, okay? So essentially the key thing in, in psychotherapy, we talk about three processes. The first is to activate the old memory and the associated painful emotion. And, th and that might be the kind of schema or semantic memory. Then you have a corrective emotional experience, Right, So that's a particular kind of new event that's going to update that schema or semantic memory. And there's an emotional component to it, which is very important. Because when it comes to memory, we can't remember everything that happens. We need to remember the things that are most important. And one of nature's ways of ensuring that we remember what's important is what's emotionally charged. So... We are activating old painful memories, but then having corrective experiences that are much more positive than expected. And that updates the memory, and it's going to update the schema and get reconsolidated at night. This is promising, and I can see how it could be perceived as terrifying at the same time. Yes. <laughs> this is, is not for the faint of heart, this work. <laughs> That's right. And that's why a therapeutic alliance is so essential. I mean, you really have to trust and feel safe with your therapist. You really have to feel like they're there with you. Yeah. And then you have, you know, added strength, added ability to deal with things that you've never been able to deal with before. And when we talk about how the brain and the body responds to trauma, and you you mentioned this in the first segment, we have a, an adverse experience, we have a traumatic experience, that memory is stored, and then anything that is perceived that smells even the slightest bit 
mm-hmm. uh, of that aroma of that original <laughs> event um, mm-hmm. triggers that trauma response in the body and the brain cannot decipher between that original event and somebody cutting us off in traffic that sent us on uh, an anger bender. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I, and that's something that we're not necessarily aware of. That's that's true. I think one thing to say about that is that the kind of the degree of the severity of the trauma will influence how nonspecific elicitors, you know, there are for reactivating the sense of trauma. So if it's really severe, it will be pretty nonspecific. But if it's a milder situation, then it will be, you know, more more differentiated. I was going to ask, how does one reach out or make this form of therapy more widely known. In other words, you don't know what you don't know, right? You, <laughs> so if you're, if, you're right. if you're stuck in a loop of, you know, you're depressed, you're angry, life is not working for you, you're adverse to therapy because, you know, you know, strong people don't go see therapists, uh, you know, whatever the narrative is that one has running in their mind, but yet there is help that is available that that can rewrite these experiences. How do you encourage the public? How do you encourage people who are listening to find qualified help to do this? Well, I think certainly one way is to talk to your primary care physician and ask for a referral. I think another way is if you have insurance, medical insurance, to ask you know, what kind of coverage you have for psychotherapeutic services and to find providers that accept your insurance and then start looking into those people. There's no better way to find a good therapist than, you know, a friend or colleague who's had a good experience with the therapist, you know, to try them out. Uh, Again, that's not a guarantee because it really depends a lot on the specific chemistry between the two people, and that's sometimes hard to predict. On the other hand, uh, therapists who have been, you know, successful with a variety of people and in particular have dealt with problems that, um, you know, the person in question is dealing with. For example, grief, you know, uh, we had somebody who was a friend who was, kind of grief-stricken, and who would I recommend? Well, of all the people that I know, I know somebody who, I know of a therapist who did great work with somebody who was having trouble with grief. And so I made that recommendation. It's that kind of thing. And if you're not fortunate enough to have insurance, there are resources available that do have qualified therapists providing at low or no cost mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm thinking of Give an Hour, for example. Um, which is a, a, a nationwide organization that will offer help to people who, who, who don't have insurance. Mm-hmm. And there are mental health clinics that, you know, take Medicaid, for example, you know, for low income populations. So, yeah, I think you have to, I'm not very familiar with the resource that you mentioned, but it's great to know that there are such things. But, you know, and, and of course, there are crisis lines. So if you're feeling suicidal and yes. thinking of ending your life, it's terribly important to get some help uh, and to call and to have someone to talk to. And, you know, if things are bad enough, then, you know, you might end up um, going to the emergency department and getting evaluated. And then they can connect you with, with people and they know what resources are available. 
I, mean, I think the bottom line, in, in summary to me, uh, of all that we've talked about is the importance of mental health, that we treat mental health as a component of our overall health and well-being, that the, 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 um, the well-being of our mind is as important as the well-being of our body, that if we mm. treat, treat, you know, our, our hearts with care and we go and see a cardiologist, you know, if we weren't feeling well, the same way we should be treating our minds. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. I think what we're, what we're adding with the book is the idea of enduring change. So there's no question that going to a mental health professional can be very helpful in the short term and to get some relief. And it's not uncommon for things like depression and anxiety disorders for you to get relief, but then to have a return of symptoms. And of course, you can go back and get more help, which is what people do. But by virtue of advances in our understanding of memory and emotion and how the brain works, we're seeing a pathway for having therapy experiences that will really be enduring and, you know, much less likely to have relapse. Thank you for spending part of your day with me. I appreciate and uh, value the work that you're doing. Um, The book we've been speaking of is The Neuroscience of Enduring Change, Implications for Psychotherapy. My guest today has been Dr. Richard D. Lane. He is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Arizona. You can find out more about him on the University of Arizona's website. And the book is available at Oxford University Press, Amazon, and wherever you get your books. Dr. Lane, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. Enjoyed it very much. We'll take a quick pause and we'll be right back with our next guest. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. are back continuing the conversation about the science and practice of enduring change alter your attitude and find your flourish my next guests are no stranger to the show i'm happy to welcome back gay Hendricks and carol klein and i'm so excited to have them back as we were looking at our date stamp on our last communications we realized that six months ago at the beginning of the pandemic We celebrated the birth or the publishing of Conscious Luck, Eight Secrets to Intentionally Change Your Fortune. My guests were and are today Gay Hendricks and Carol Klein. They are the co-authors of this book. And so much has changed or evolved in those six months. Before we get started, I want to just give a little uh, tooting of their horns. Gay Hendricks, PhD, has served for more than 40 years as one of the major contributors to the fields of relationship transformation and body-mind therapies. He is a New York Times bestselling author, and his books include Conscious Loving and The Big Leap. Carol Klein has been an author, editor, and ghostwriter for more than 20 years. And we're back together again. The gang is all here. Welcome back, Carol and Gay, six months later. Oh, thanks for, yeah. Thanks for having us. Well, you have been busy at work. Conscious Luck has been somewhat of a lucky charm in that it has been a creative catalyst for the two of you, and you're giving birth to another angle of Conscious Luck. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what's happening next. 
Well, one of the things that I really learned in working with Carol on this book was what an amazing writer she is and how good she is at pulling things together and in a really organized way. And I really benefited from her genius at that when we were writing Conscious Luck. So after Conscious Luck came out and people started using it, um, Carol came up with another genius idea, which was to create a workbook and journal that goes along with it. So I'll let her fill you in on the details of that, but that's one of the things we're most excited by that we've been working on during the pandemic season. Yeah. Oh my goodness. It's so great to be here again. I remember how positive and excited you were about the book and how that made us feel, me feel so good. I can only <laughs> speak for myself because, you know, we, it was all, hadn't even come out yet. It came out in May. And right around the time we talked to you last, I was just really getting used to discussing it at length and seeing how it landed for people besides Gay and me, you know, who knew this stuff and had been thinking about it for years. And it was just a very exciting time. And it turned into, you know, how we, we heard from people who'd read it, you know, how do I make this work in my life? Or I didn't understand this, or how does this work? And I realized that there was another piece to the puzzle. And uh, Gay and I worked together to talk about what what would happen if we actually were sitting with someone and they asked us their questions and we had them really have the principles put into into action in your own life. You'd read things. I know you've had this happen, Lisa. You read a book. You even go, aha, and have epiphanies. And then does it really translate into action in your life? And that's what we wanted. We wanted to take Conscious Luck, the ideas that are presented in there that are really helpful, that will really help you take luck and make it not random, not chance, but something that you can harness and create for yourself every day. And so the rollout is of a complimentary workbook that takes us through the process. Conscious, the Conscious Luck Workbook, uh, Applying the Eight Secrets in Your Daily Life. And when we talk about the contents of the workbook and going back to the, the the pillars of conscious luck, eight secrets to intentionally change your fortune, you write about the the alteration of attitude that needs to happen to allow these domains of our lives, mental, emotional, physical, financial, etc., to flourish. Talk a little bit about that. Yes. Well, one of the things that you notice in human life is that Many people tend to focus on the negative rather than focusing on the positive. And so you hear people talking just, you know, where you're walking down the street or watching television or listening to the radio or whatever when you're in your car. And you hear themes coming out about people who've been unlucky or bad things that would happen. You know, in the newspaper trade, I started out as a newspaper reporter for the St. Petersburg Times in 1968. And you've probably heard the old cliche, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, because the more sensational the story. (laughs) God, yes. (laughs) That's that's the epic. You know, you want something on the headline that grabs people and say, oh, my gosh, you know. And so, but Carol and I, We realize, and a lot of the evidence in the book points to, that all of us are just one thought away from changing our lives in a positive direction. In other words, all it takes is one positive thought to turn things in a new direction. Suppose you've been going around all your life 
thinking you're not lucky. You know, you've been having the thought, I'm not lucky. Good stuff doesn't happen to me. I don't deserve the good stuff of life. Well, those are the same kinds of negative thoughts that people come in and talk to me about all the time. And we have the opportunity, though, because the human mind is so incredibly exhilaratingly open to learning, all you need to do is insert one new thought, like like the one in the first chapter of the book, the idea that I'm willing to be luckier today than I was yesterday, and I'm willing to be luckier tomorrow than I am today. So just beginning to think in positive terms about luck is one of the most important things you can do. Um, In fact, in our trainings, we say you're only one breath and one thought away from changing your life because all it takes is one big good breath ah, to say, okay, now I'm ready for something new and to change one thought like I'm lucky or I deserve all the good stuff in the world. You know, going back to um, if it bleeds, it leads and the, the wiring of our brains, you know, it's my understanding from what little I do know about neuroscience that, you know, our, we're, we're hardwired to focus attention on the negative because it really taps into that primal response to remain vigilant so we're not consumed by the saber-toothed tiger. Exactly. Well, it, the saber-toothed tiger is exactly uh, right because, you know, why do we have thousands and thousands of pain points, nerve endings in the bottom of our foot? Well, because we've been running away from saber-toothed tigers for millions of years. It's only recently that we've been able to erect little boxes around us to protect us from the weather and and saber-toothed tigers. But for 99% of human evolution, we've been living in hunter-gatherer societies where we've been dealing with real threats. And now we come into a situation in the modern world, we're in a pandemic or we're getting chewed out by our boss or whatever, the same kind of nervous system that was put together to deal with saber-toothed tigers, we're still sitting on it. You know, we have it inside us. We still have all the same fears and angers and sadnesses that human beings have and have had for millennia. And so what we need to do is to open up and acknowledge all of the things that we've been in the past and all of the ways we've been programmed. But the beautiful thing about being a human being is that we're the one species that can actually consciously change our program. Yeah. You know, if a worm is crawling around, it doesn't get to say, golly, I think I'll invite <laughs> something to pedal around on tomorrow, you know, and uh, make a worm cycle. But uh, we have this amazing opportunity. We're one of almost 9 million species that can have a conversation about conscious luck. And so that's, we need to just radiate with happiness and joy and pride and good fortune just for that fact alone, and then build onto that by changing our minds about what's possible for us in the realm of luck. And this is where the workbook comes in, because this is where the practice begins. And you are teaching us ways in a very simple, pragmatic form that we can begin to rewire, we can begin to shift that consciousness from for some of us, it might be victim consciousness, you know, that we might be thinking, poor me, stuck into the uh, pity party cycle, to, wow, look at me go. It's so important to acknowledge our flexible minds, because the way I always say it is, we're born 
as a Learjet, but then we learn to only plow potato fields with our Learjet. So we taxi back and forth <laughs> up and down the fields plowing potatoes. <laughs> but what we need is a path to a better runway. And one of the things that Carol and I are so happy about with the book is that we've laid out a pretty specific runway that if you start with chapter one and start working on commitment and getting your head straight and your body aligned with your mind, that's a really powerful runway to conscious luck. And then as you go on through the book, one of the things that kind of pieces of magic that happened in the book is that Carol interviewed a Stanford professor named Tina Selig, who has a concept about luck that it's more like the wind that your job is to find out how to harness the wind and open your sails so that you go with the wind rather than thinking of luck as a lightning strike or a once in a lifetime thing that gets conferred upon you when you're born that we have the the luck is blowing all the time and we need to find out how to ride those uh currents of air yeah that meta shift was for me sort of the big breakthrough. And I, I believe that this understanding of luck is random outside of us. You know, we can't control it has limited our lives and our luck for centuries. I think you're right. And I think we've all met or known people who seem to have the lucky charm, you know, the one that always wins the the raffle, you know, the one that always wins at bingo, the one that always, you know, gets the job. And yet when you ask them about it, they're like, well, I don't know, you know, they don't really know. <laughs> they just have it. Yeah, that's a really great point I've been thinking about is that there's that dumb luck, right? People just think, oh, it's just dumb luck. It just, I don't know. What if you could have smart luck, like smartphones, smart cars, we yeah. can have smart watches, smart luck, where you could actually create that luck on demand. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, I would love to tap into the ingredients of creating smart luck. We're talking about conscious luck, eight secrets to intentionally change your fortune, both the book and the forthcoming workbook, this, the how to journal and guide to learn more about the work of Gay Hendricks and Carol Klein. Please visit consciousluck.com on Twitter at Gay Hendricks and on Facebook, Conscious Luck. Here comes the break and we're going to be super lucky because we're coming right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. back continuing the conversation with Gay Hendricks and Carol Klein. We're talking about the science and practice of enduring change. 
alter your attitude and find your flourish. Let's get back to the conversation. Carol, you were talking about smart luck, the transformation of dumb luck into smart luck. And take it away because I think giving us a little roadmap for this would be really helpful. Well, here's the thing. Most of us, our whole life, we've had good things happen to us. We've had bad things happen to us. And that's the thing, happen to us. We sort of don't realize that our own attitudes, actions, and associations have a huge impact on what happens to us. So that is the premise of the book, is that you can spend the rest of your life, and you're welcome to do that. Many people do and will, just hoping and you know, crossing your fingers and <laughs> hoping it'll all happen the way you want it to. Or you can take control. It's it's that fabulous external versus internal locus of control. Uh, do you want to spend your life at the mercy of external circumstances, or do you want to look inside yourself? At, and as Gay said in the beginning of the show, make the commitment to being lucky. Open that that mindset, which is so important for everything in life. And then the other that's the first secret. It's not the only secret. This is not magical thinking. This isn't just, oh, you decide to be lucky and you are. It's the first step. It opens the door to smart luck. And then there we have three more foundational secrets where you look at the problems that are the obstacles and the barriers you have to luck from your conditioning. You look at the shame you carry in your life, in your body, and transform that. You look at your goals and how they can give luck a reason to visit. And then we have four daily practices about taking bold action, risks, mixing it up, you know, getting out there, getting beyond your comfort zone. We have one about, you know, hanging out with people who being having a lucky community, having people around you who support you and, and you know, celebrate your growth. And then using your intuition, your uh, inner, sort of your moral compass, uh, getting in touch with yourself, your inner GPS. And the last one is about practicing gratitude and appreciation on a regular basis. So radical gratitude. I was just going to say that radical gratitude. And I love that. That's another one of your, your little gems from the book, you know, smart luck, radical gratitude. You know, there, these are simple things that we can do each day, but it's almost like, you know, where you focus your attention is where you find yourself. And that's what I'm hearing that this is about. That's really a great point because we suggest the possibility in the book, but by just shifting your attention slightly, you open up to a whole new world of luck, just like um, the wind image. You know, there, a good sailor might be able to open up his or her sails on a boat in a way that made the boat um, go faster than the person next door who didn't know in the next boat over that didn't know how to adjust their sails just that way. Uh, I don't know. I'm not speaking from personal um, experience because I get radically seasick. <laughs> but I know Carol has a boat and uh, yes, can speak. she's become a more keen student of the wind than I have. Well, this is a great metaphor because, you know, you can either sail with the wind or against the wind and with the wind is infinitely easier. And Yeah, well, yes. And the great thing is, is you have you can do that. That's up to you. Yeah. You can build that sail. And basically the directions, the detailed step-by-step -step directions for building that sail are in our book. Just do this, do this, do this, and the sail will go up and it will 
you know, billow out with the wind behind you, you know, pushing you towards your goals and your desires and your successes and your contributions. But the tuning in process, you mentioned the power of intuition here. And I think that this is an often overlooked and minimized sense, although we, you know, we use it in, in, in conversation, you know, ad nauseum, this is my sense or my sixth sense tells me or my gut tells me, but how many of us are really tuning into that level within ourselves? And the fact is we can train to do that, to be better at it. Yes. And, you know, I, I read a lot of anthropology and I like, um, that sort of thing. And I was reading one time about the Bushmen of South Africa, tribes that can feel the presence of game animals nine miles away by they're sensitive to the trembling of the earth. So they can tell when the buffalo are starting to migrate, for example, by tuning into it uh, by a vibration they sense in their calves. Now, I'm sure you and I, we could stand in the desert all day long and not sense any buffalo, even if they were standing (laughs) stomping 100 yards away from us. (laughs) But they've trained themselves to do that. And, you know, it's just like that wonderful story of of Stevie Wonders where somehow a mouse got loose in his first grade classroom and the teacher was freaking out and all the students were freaking out. But then he said, Shh, listen, I'll be able to hear where the mouse is and tell you where the mouse is hiding. And so yeah. everybody quieted down and then he was able to say where the mouse was. So I think that we have these enormous potentials within us to reinvent ourselves consciously any way we want. Like I, up until age 24, I struggled with a medical problem. I had a something wrong glandularly from the moment I was born and I put on weight. So the end of my first year of life, I was this very fat baby and I grew up to be a a fat kid in a family where everybody else was skinny. And so I was taken around to all sorts of different um, medical specialists and given shots and put on drugs and everything like that. But none of it really changed until I made a commitment to changing it when I was 24 And so I lost more than 100 pounds in a year and uh, became one of those medical rarities that lost a great deal of weight and have kept it off now for the past 50 years. And so it's possible to reinvent ourselves at every stage of the game. And luck is easier in a way because it doesn't weigh 120 pounds. You don't need to starve it off. You just need to adjust your sails a little bit to open up to what might be possible and then learn to ride those wind currents. You talk about there being some level of commitment required to change one's luck. What does that look like? Because people oftentimes will go, oh, I'm just not willing to invest or do the work. Hmm. That's an interesting a way to look at it. Commitment really starts with a decision, the willingness. Actually, it starts with a desire. <laughs> it starts with a desire to do something. And then it just, and then you conscious change begins with a willingness. I'm willing to change. Now, if you don't have that, there's not much you can do. If you don't have the desire to change and you don't have the willingness to change, commitment probably won't happen. But those two happen, but sometimes the commitment doesn't happen. Yeah. You want to change, you're willing to change, but the commitment is where the rubber meets the road. Because I want you to do a little experiment right now. Sit in your chair. You're sitting there. Everybody is listening. 
and decide to get up, but don't move. Just decide you're going to get up. Can you feel your body, the micro muscles already getting ready? Can you sort of feel energy going up? That's what happens when you commit. When you commit to something, everything in you gets ready to do it. You have prepared yourself for the next step. And the thing about commitment, which I love, Gay talks about this in a beautiful way, it's not a one and done thing. <laughs> you yeah. have to commit every day. It's yes. like baking bread, right? You and recommit and commit again. It's like, <laughs> yes, because you'll get off course. And the, the secret, you know, you have an awesome power. You've created your life the way it is right now. That same power you can use to create it a different way. All it requires, it's part of the deal, is when you drift, you come back to what your commitment was. To remain on the path. And anybody who is seeking a destination of any kind, occasionally will stray from the path. They'll, they, will, they will move outside of the lines of the road while maintaining focus on the destination. Yes. In fact, recommitment is just as important as commitment because there's a tremendous pull in the world in general to get us off track. And so we need to constantly be recommitting and recorrecting. The example I use is the automatic pilot on an aircraft that gets set maybe in L.A. on its way to Honolulu, and it will drift thousands of times between L.A. and Honolulu, and each time it just calmly reconnects and gets back on center. Unlike a human being, of course, if that were a human being, they'd go through about three cycles of, hey, we're drifting, let's correct. And then the other one would say, well, don't. Don't hassle me. Get off my case, you know. And uh, so uh, they would stray all the way up to Alaska. But the automatic pilot just keeps <laughs> nudging you back toward Honolulu. And the nice thing is it gets all the way to Honolulu by being wrong most of the time. And so that's a good thing to keep in mind, too, that no need to get upset about wandering off the uh, course. Just make a correction and get back on. No need to make a drama about it. And so I think that uh, recommitment is an essential thing to get into our repertoire. But another thing, too, is the actual act of taking action. I mean, that's the moment where everything hinges on. You know, we've talked about willingness. We've talked about commitment. But there will come a moment in actual practice where you need to implement. And that's why the workbook is coming your way because in practicing those real life moments, you have the opportunity to be ready for them when the time comes, when you get faced with them out there and the standing in line at the bank or sitting in a, a traffic jam on the freeway or whenever you need to implement a tool to make yourself luckier. These are the moments that you can really prepare for by doing the work in the book and then in the new workbook. When we talk about the climate in which we are all living now, or everybody in the world, and the sense of uncertainty for many that life as we have known it has been redirected for a period of time. Some people will say that they have been unlucky because of how life has unfolded as a result of the pandemic or as a result of the political climate or as a result of a lot of external circumstances. And where I see conscious luck really coming into play is the opportunity for that reframe to redirect that focus from the things that have gone wrong 
to the opportunity that arises from those things that have gone wrong. Yes. You know, I think that the practice of radical gratitude, as we describe it in Conscious Luck, is really the ability and the willingness to find luck in every situation, even when it's buried in the most challenging of situations. And this is not a Pollyanna, you know, counter blessings at all costs kind of practice. We're talking about a really gentle switch in focus, a really gentle opening to say, to feel your feelings first, because, you know, this has not been a picnic no. for, for most people. <laughs> no. You know, if, if you are lucky enough to have money, have a partner, have, you know, there's so many reasons I've been aware of my privilege in this uh, pandemic has never been more, you know, obvious, my luck. And I, I get that. If you have the ability to just feel your feelings and go through whatever they are realistically and not try and talk yourself out of them, and then on the basis of that authentic emotional place, just ask yourself, is there anything here I could be grateful for? And then just listen. Just listen. And that exercise will absolutely help release the grip of victimhood, even just opening up enough to think, could there be something? You may not find anything at this moment, but the fact that you've opened your mindset to say, and we can look back over the past sometimes and see places where it seemed like a catastrophe that actually turned out great or at least way better than you thought it would or led you in a direction that never would have happened that turned out to be a good direction. So just sort of getting out of your blinkered, shuttered emotional response to what looks like a bad thing can be very powerful. And Gay talked about curiosity is one of the main ingredients earlier on in this conversation, that that state of curiosity where we're asking questions and really wondering about the world and ourselves, I think that places us on a different trajectory. Yeah, that's exactly right. It does, because wonder and curiosity are direct antidotes to fear. And there's a lot of fear in our bodies these days and a lot of fear in the air. And what we need to do is take make use of that fear that's given to us organically and naturally by opening up our wonder and our curiosity and opening up to, hmm, how could we be even more creative in light of this current situation? Or, hmm, how could I be even kinder to my mate in this situation? Because I know exactly what he or she is going through because I'm going through it too. How could I be more compassionate toward myself and forgiving and loving toward myself? So getting underneath the situation to wonder and invoke curiosity about it is a powerfully liberating thing to do. So the invitation becomes not minimizing the challenges that are, whether it's in the pandemic or elsewhere, but embracing the possibilities of what we can do with these challenges. How can we create something? How can we uh, learn something about ourselves and stretch into the next thing, which might just actually be lucky? Exactly, because you never know when that wind is going to be blowing it in a certain way to interact with your sails. Birds birds manage to navigate 
very far away. You know, we have hummingbirds that migrate all the way from Guatemala across the Gulf of Mexico to Alabama every year without eating anything along the way or having to stop and go to the bathroom or anything like that. Somehow this miracle occurs. And so we do have this amazing power within us to acknowledge where we are, certainly also liberate our creative thinking and say, hmm, how could we create joy for ourselves and more people given the situation here? So listeners, if you're looking for a a passion project, if you're looking for a way to make use of a a little time that you may find on your hands during the situation in which we find ourselves, um, I recommend Conscious Luck, Eight Secrets to Intentionally Change Your Fortune, but more importantly, the action component as well, which is the workbook that will help put into action the principles contained within the book. So to learn more about the work of Gay Hendricks and Carol Klein, please visit ConsciousLuck.com, on Twitter at Gay Hendricks, and on Facebook, uh, that page is also Conscious Luck. Carol and Gay, thanks for coming and joining me again and celebrating six months of, I don't know what we would call it, except an incredible opportunity to grow. (laughs) A once in a lifetime, one hopes, yes, to be real with yourself and get very, very simple. Yeah, simple, clear, and direct. Our heart goes out to all of us, too, who are going through the same thing. We all have the same kinds of anxieties and fears and griefs and angers and access to joy that we all carry around within us at all times. And so uh, here's to making most of how the winds are blowing right now. Beautifully said. And, uh, you know, Carol, you mentioned Pollyanna. I mean, although this is a positive psychology (laughs) show, Pollyanna does not live here. (laughs) We keep it real. (laughs) Yeah. Keep it real. I appreciate that about you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Well, come back anytime. We know we we will have to um, reconvene in a few months with the next installment because I know there is a phase three to this project which should not be revealed at this moment. So that'll sort of maybe uh, interest our listeners. And uh, anytime, come back. It's always a pleasure to to visit and, and share. Love thank your you energy. So yes, thank, thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on today's show. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests, Dr. Richard Lane, Gay Hendricks, and Carol Klein, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Just go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.